Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Uh, I'm Nigel Hawkes, and I've written an article in the current issue of the BMJ drawing on the first 50 entrants in the BMJ confidential column. These are leading doctors and um, people involved in healthcare who've uh, answered a questionnaire about their likes and dislikes, their career, their mistakes, their inspiration, and so on. And uh, today I'm going to ask um, half a dozen of them um, to summarize just one answer that they gave, which is, what is their pet hate? Um, I'm going to start with Simon Wesley, a psychiatrist. He's a um, professor of psychological medicine at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. Um, and he described himself as a, a man with a joking seriousness in his uh, BMJ confidential. Now, Simon, what, what's your pet hate? I think perhaps it'll become clear. So greetings, everyone. My name's Lucifer, and I'm the uh, chief executive of the Helen Damnation Foundation NHS Trust. And this is my Xmas message for you. Now, since I joined a year ago, this has been a personal journey for me. As you know, I wanted to hit the ground running, so I initiated a deep dive into our infernal departments. And I met so many inspirational members of our staff and listened to their inspiring stories, which have been inspiring for me. Because, of course... We at the Trust are a people's organisation, our staff are our greatest asset and are at the heart of everything that we do. But we are also a learning organisation, so the door of my furnace will always be open to anyone with innovative suggestions, so long of course as they don't involve money. Now, I am passionate about values, and so with you we started a listening exercise, together with some rather expensive 16-year-olds from McKinsey, but together we agreed our core values, and these are respect, tolerance, caring, patience, equality, caring, transparency, accountability, and above all, caring. <laughs> and also, of course, honesty and candor. Although, should you actually admit to doing anything uh, wrong, then I'm afraid the General Devil Council, the Quality Torment Commission, and all will ensure you suffer bureaucratic misery that even we professionals down in hell can only envy. Now, before I took up this post, as you know, I worked as special advisor to Lucifer himself, and I helped to co-produce our white paper. This is, of course, towards a shared vision. Better care, better health, better safety, improving access, improving outcomes, improving quality, integrating services, crossing boundaries, a world-class service for all. Now, <laughs> I'm sure you've all read it and therefore share my vision of transformational change, a paradigm shift to put the sinner at the heart of everything that we do. We will move forward together. Standing still is not an option. With our multi-professional, multitasking, multidisciplinary workforce who share my passion for putting multi in the front of every word that we use. <laughs> Next year, we will face challenges to which we will rise. We will have conversations, many of them difficult, and consultations which will, of course, always be widespread. But I know what good will look like. It will be when we deliver a world-class centre of excellence for torment and suffering, one that will always put the cliché at the heart of everything that we do. Happy Christmas. <laughs> Thank you, Simon, for that um, wonderful piece of uh, blue-sky thinking, uh, which took us well out of the box. Um, and I'm now going to turn to Ian Chalmers. Um, he's one of the founders of the Cochrane Collaboration, um, uh, obsessed with evidence and uh, guiding healthcare on proper and sensible grounds. And uh, Ian, tell me, what, what was your, what's your pet hate? My pet hate um, is the perverse effects of filthy lucre 
in medicine. Now, I found out already that some people don't know what filthy lucre is. And so I should make clear, first of all, that it's not the Sex Pistols album of that name. Instead, it's in fact about shameful profit. Uh, such, for example, he would sell his soul for filthy lucre. So most doctors are far from being millionaires, but they are also far from having to resort to food banks to feed their families. We're well off as a profession, and so we should find it possible to resist the greed that sometimes manifests itself. But what about the effects of filthy lucre in medical research? Well, it distorts the evidence needed to inform decisions in healthcare and results in avoidable suffering and death. There's actually now widely documented evidence that financial conflicts of interest result in biased design, biased reporting, and biased interpretation of research. And this is because patent-orientated research is being prioritized over patient-orientated <laughs> research. This is unethical, unscientific, harmful, and actually uneconomic um, as well. Now, I've been wittering on about this issue uh, for three decades or more, um, and it really wasn't until, um, for example, Ben Goldegger came along with his book, Bad Pharma, that anyone started to take it seriously. But I'm actually glad to observe that the BMJ, uh, under Fiona Godley, has actually been taking this issue seriously for a number of years now. And indeed, in the most recent issue, there's an editorial from uh, four of the editors, including Fiona, um, entitled Medical Journals and Industry Ties, Zero Tolerance on Educational Articles with Financial Links um, to Industry. What have our professional organizations done to address these problems? Well, um, I give the gold medal to the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine. For some time now, it has had, as part of its ethical code, and I quote, it's unethical to withhold the publication of any results of research on any pharmaceutical product, whether the results are positive, negative, or inconclusive. What about the Academy of Medical Sciences? The less said, the better. What about the Royal College of Physicians? Well, um, in 2009, they had a working party on patients, physicians, and the pharmaceutical industry and the NHS. In their recommendations, absolutely no mention of publication bias or the need for the RCP to help confront it. Do not blame industry for trying to get away from anything that's normally considered to be its primary purpose, which is to make profits and to look after its shareholders' interests. It's our profession that has colluded in all of this and been prepared to go along with it. We're the people to blame because we need not have stood for it. Um, one of my heroes is Edwin Gale, and he put it like it is, actually, in an article that he contributed to the BMJ on conflicts of interest in guideline panel members. He said, let's forget the hand-wringing and confront the reality of the world in which we live. Academic and non-academic medicine are pervaded by conflicts of interest, and too many people benefit from the situation for this to be openly acknowledged. What's needed is a change of culture in which serving two masters becomes as socially unacceptable as smoking a cigarette. Here, here. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. Uh, I'm sure the day is coming when uh, journalists will have to declare conflicts of interest, but um, with any luck I will be retired by the time that day arrives. 
Um, our next contributor is, is somebody who you're always delighted to see when you go through the door of a particularly dull conference on some <laughs> public health issue and you think, this is going to be a hard, gloomy couple of hours. And there you find Alan Marion Davies, <laughs> invariably cheerful, um, a, a, a public health doctor um, who uh, also sings in a humorous singing group called Instant Sunshine. Oh, yeah. So, Alan, what's your pet hate? Tight plastic wrappings on, on, on CDs, DVDs, cartons of tea, and copies of the BMJ, actually. <laughs> I, I, just, I just can't stand them. They drive me absolutely crazy, all that scrabbling about, trying to get into them. Drives me completely mad. I mean, and, and, and where where can you find? You can never find that little gold strip you're meant to pull to get the, you know, just to get started, just to break in there. And it's not just the the, the cellophane. It's it's anything that's shrink wrapped or bubble packed. And I can't count how many times I've I've struggled with that that that, um, that little straw thing stuck on the side of those um, those juice cartons. I mean, you get more and more white knuckled. Then finally, you get in there, you push the straw through the hole, and the whole lot squirts all over your front. And it, it, it it's really really bad for the blood pressure actually and and there is a serious point to, to my particular pet hater it, it all this tight wrapping is actually i think discriminatory i mean it puts whole swathes of the population at a real disadvantage i think i mean what about people with arthritis for instance or impaired vision or, or, or no teeth and it's bad for the planet all that plastic virtually all of that plastic is from finite fossil fuels most of it is going to landfill it's such a waste and we just don't need it bring back soggy brown paper bags i say and in a way all this tight plastic wrapping it is a symptom really a metaphor for our shrink wrap society everything is bite-sized it's packaged it's knee-jerk it's rapid fire it's news bites it's 140 character tweet it's facebook likes and dislikes we've been more and more bubble packed and hermetically sealed forced in, into time slots and sound bites and market segmentation groups and even this rant is about to get brutally cut off so we must fight the trend we must break free so what i say is Wingers of the world unite. We have nothing to lose but our tight plastic wrapping. <laughs> Thanks very much. I, I think toothbrushes are the worst. Have you tried to get into a toothbrush oh, recently? Impossible, impossible. No wonder. No teeth, it's even harder. <laughs> I'm now going to turn to Iona Heath. She, she's already complained. Uh, she's the token woman on this panel. But I would say, uh, on the contrary, she's a singular woman on this panel. And if she wrote poems, she'd be the, the poet laureate of primary care. Um, but in fact, she writes essays about primary care, which uh, have inspired um, many GPs. So, Iona, um, what's your pet hate? My pet hate is government by posh boys for posh boys. And I hate them because um, their government invokes to a disturbing extent the predictions to be found in sociologist Michael Young's 1958 satire, The Rise of the Meritocracy. And in the introduction to a later edition of his by then classic book, Young wrote, If the rich and powerful were encouraged by the general culture to believe that they fully deserved all they had, how arrogant they could become. And if they were convinced it was all for the common good, how ruthless in pursuing their own advantage. And I ask you, is there a better description of the current state of government? 
those in power, despite all the advantages of their birth and education, convince themselves that all their success is achieved entirely through their own merits and so deserved. The sinister obverse of this is that they tacitly seem to assume that the opposite must also be true and that those on the losing side of our deeply unequal society similarly deserve their fate. There is no acknowledgement in government rhetoric or policy of the enormous role of luck in people's lives. Our current government does not appear to understand the meaning of an ethics of reciprocity. Politicians demand compassion and yet show none themselves. They know that poverty makes people sick and yet they adopt fiscal policies that make the poor sicker and then castigate healthcare professionals for not being able to reverse the inevitable health inequality. If the government want to see a health service permeated by care, compassion and respect that we all want for those we love, then they must pay more attention to the importance of demonstrating those same qualities in their treatment of frontline health staff. The NHS is reaping what this government has sown by undermining its foundations in the notion of shared responsibility, reciprocity and social solidarity and by making it available for the pursuit of private profit. Government by posh boys for posh boys represents a total failure of imaginative solidarity with those less fortunate than themselves. That's the posh boys put in their place. Well, thank you very much, Iona. Um, I'm now going to turn to uh, Nick Black. Um, He's a professor of health service research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and um, a a season ticket holder at at Arsenal. And um, in addition to that, he's a champion of patient-reported outcome measures, um, a a form of uh, information that some people say is not being adequately exploited by the NHS. So, Nick, what's your pet hate? My pet hate is the loss of pleasure of walking down the street because of people walking along absorbed in what I shall call their, their electronic gizmos. You walk down the street now and some idiot walks into you and you and they are completely absorbed in this thing that they've got in their hands. You see people actually stepping out into traffic doing this. Um, so there may be some self-selecting elimination, but I think we've got a long time to wait for that. Um, <laughs> And what it represents is a real lack of consideration for others, essentially. It's a sort of arrogance that only they matter. Although I have to say, in terms of rudeness and lack of consideration of others, it's trumped by people in the coffee shop, in the queue in front of you, who are talking on the phone while the person serving them is trying to actually interact with them and ask for their money, uh, which I think is, is, is actually tops the, uh, the, uh, the gizmos in the street. I think there is actually, aside from just the irritation that I I've, I find because I think it, it, it you lose a lot from it is um, two sort of more serious sides to it in some ways they're detaching themselves from the social world it's a sort of statement of this prevalent individualism that we've has grown over the last few decades it's almost stating that I am an island um, I will have no connection no interaction with other people uh, I'm going to be absorbed in this thing in my hand the other serious point is these people are detaching themselves not only from the social world but from the physical world it's almost like the opposite extreme to the um, notion of le flaneur, the stroller, the saunterer, the idler. Um, Now, one can over-romanticise that, um, which I think is no bad thing, Um, but uh, 
this, the, the concept that we will just wander through the urban environment, exploring and taking an interest in it, uh, sometimes the connoisseur of the street. And I think these people just would not have a clue what I was talking about. They are, they are missing so much. So my plea is to them is to put their gizmos away, to look up and start enjoying the pleasure of being part of the community. Thank you. And, uh, uh, the, 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 the one that particularly uh, irritates me is young mothers pushing their babies in prams and not communicating with the babies, uh, stuck on a mobile phone talking to somebody else. I, 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 to the baby. I, I'm tempted to stop <laughs> them and say, <laughs> shake them and say, come on, this baby's only got one babyhood. Talk to it, communicate. Um, but that would be misinterpreted. Um, finally, I'm going to turn to uh, Andy Haynes. Uh, he's an epidemiologist, a former director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which under his leadership was the first institution to win the Gates Foundation a million, million dollar award for global health. So um, Andy, what's your pet hate? Well, my pet hate is conspicuous consumption, which is the spending of money on luxury goods and services to publicly display economic power. It's a means of either attaining or maintaining social status. And one example that really gets up my nose is the increasing number of status seekers flaunting their wealth on London streets, driving ever more bloated so-called sports utility vehicles that are neither sporting nor useful, with must-have features. For example, one oligarch had seats made from whale penis leather. <laughs> That's correct, by the way. <laughs> Or absurdly expensive luxury cars like the £300,000 velvet-covered Rolls-Royce Phantom drophead spotted outside Harrods in Knightsbridge just this weekend. At least in the past, there was some control over ownership. A Tory Bugatti, God bless him, used to vet prospective owners of the Bugatti Royale, and he turned down King Zog of Albania for four table manners. <laughs> Bring it back, I say. It should exclude most of today's drivers. So what is behind this desperate search for status? Torstein Veblen, a sociologist in 1899, saw the rise of conspicuous consumption in the, in the US not as progress, but harking back to an earlier feudal period in which the idle rich dominated the industrious poor and middle classes. And it does feel like that sometime in, in the streets of London. But more re recently, in 2011, Sundian colleagues shone a new light on this important emerging area of knowledge. In an article entitled Peacock's Porsches and Torstein Verblin, that's the sociologist again, they concluded flaunting status-linked goods is not simply about displaying economic resources. It appears to be part of a more precise signalling system focused on short-term mating. So, dear listeners... Should any of you ever feel tempted by the short-term mating opportunity offered by one of these narcissists, I would urge you to resist and not give them any satisfaction at all. We cannot go on consuming at the rate we are doing. Climate is changing at unprecedented rates. Oceans are acidifying faster than any time in the last 20 million years. And conspicuous consumption helps to drive these trends. Can we stop the search for status? No, it's too deeply embedded in our social fabric but perhaps we can find better ways of displaying it. Dear listeners, please send your suggestions to the BMJ for New Year's resolutions for status seekers, or perhaps that's most of us, about how they can signal status without wrecking the planet. I wish you a very Merry Christmas. May you consume what makes you happy, but please not conspicuously.
<laughs> Thank you very much. I, I'm, I trust we all came here by bicycle or public transport, not yeah. by vulgar vehicles um, adorned with unnecessary decoration. I liked, I liked your flaneurs. Flaneurs are very good, oh, yes. Lovely. The only problem is they all died of syphilis, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I actually did for them. I think you are on one point, though, because judging by our own children, they're using this usually to actually improve their social interactions. All of us who went to university at the same time, we spent most of our time missing out on parties or you'd go to a pub and everyone had moved on. I mean, it was just me that moved on to me. <laughs> but now, of course, that doesn't happen because most of those conversations they're having are about getting together and you just if you actually go to the meeting places in london they can never have been more packed out don't you worry that secretly they're actually having a better time than we did they they may well be having a better time and that that's an, that, that is very annoying <laughs> and we'll leave our grumpy old doctors to moan over their mince pies thanks to simon wesley ian chalmers alan marion davis iona heath nick black and andy haynes and of course nigel hawks whose article Doctors, Caring Extroverts or Deluded Chocoholics is now published on thebmj.com.